Hi, I'm Ryan Levy. Welcome to Cyberism's Malicious Life. It was a fateful moment in the United States Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit. Dozens of people gathered in the old courthouse waiting for the arrival of the circuit judges and their impending decision on a certain case on a sunny summer day in 2018. On one side of the courthouse stood the officials and lawyers of the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC. A powerful United States government agency with more than 1,000 employees and an annual budget of 300 million dollars. On the other side stood one man, the owner of a failed business with few resources left. An entire agency against one Michael Doherty. The issue at stake was momentous. Could the FTC sue a company just because it was hacked? In other words, is a cybersecurity failure a civil offense? As the circuit judges read their decision aloud, many people in the courthouse gasped. It was the eventful culmination of a long legal fight made of many twists and turns that began a decade earlier. So my name is Michael Doherty. I am the CEO of LabMD, a now shell of a fully, formerly fully functioning uh, cancer detection laboratory that was based in Atlanta, Georgia. And LabMD did prostate cancer analysis as well as any other type of blood or urine type of analysis that would come into a, a urologist's office. So PSAs, bladder cancer, you know, blood levels, kidney, all that. I'm from Detroit. Uh, I have a degree in economics from the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. And I got into medicine pretty quickly out of the University of Michigan by working as a, a medical device salesman in surgery. And then in LabMD started around 1996. Michael started his company with a simple plan in mind, utilizing then new technologies in order to streamline medical tests and provide better and more accurate results. And we were really humming along and um, it was private and uh, no debt and about 26,000 square feet in Atlanta and about 40 employees at its peak with salespeople around the country. But just at the height of Michael's success in 2008, something strange happened. I remember it pretty darn well because it was it was the morning um, I came into the office I got there about nine o'clock 930 and my vice president of operations came in and said a guy called and he said he had 9,000 of, of our files patients it one file with 9,000 patients that guy was Robert Bobeck CEO of a cybersecurity company called Tyversa which specialized in scanning file sharing networks and alerting companies who whose private data it discovered there. Bobek wanted to alert LabMD that it was hacked. So he had one file with 9,000 patients. 
He said he found it out in cyberspace. And my first, now I, I'm from Detroit and I was raised by, both my parents are police officers. I'm incredibly suspicious of, of criminal conduct. And I also know that's not normal behavior in medicine. In medicine, you don't call up a facility and say, hey, I got your stuff. I'm a total stranger. I'll be happy to tell you about it if you pay me. It stunk immediately. So I made him prove it and he sent the file over. Then it was immediate pandemonium. It was like, you have to understand 2008 is very, very different than 2022. You know, no one knew what a breach was. When you said breach in the lexicon, they thought a breach birth. You know, um, 9,000 patients out in cyberspace was insanely huge and very alarming. After several moments of shock and disbelief, Michael and his team rushed into action. Their first missions were to locate the source of the information leak and put an end to the vulnerability in their systems. And we saw the file, and immediately we knew the file was a insurance aging file from the accounts receivable department. We just marched right up there because only six employees It's a completely different database. We marched right up to the office and, and the manager said she had LimeWire on her computer. And we never put LimeWire in computers. We didn't allow anyone to even use the internet. Truly, 90% of our employees didn't even have an email address, let alone have access to the web. There was no reason for them to have either. And so uh, we honed in very quickly because it, it could only be in a couple of places. And we found the software and the folder and we deleted it. But Michael knew that blocking the vulnerability wasn't enough. As a medical company, LabMD had to protect its patients' data. So we blew away the vulnerability and then we started looking for potential victims. Uh, where was it possible? And we ended up getting rid of that employee. We scoured every laptop, every workstation, every server. There was no peer-to-peer file sharing software anywhere else. That file was nowhere else. So we were confident we removed whatever was considered vulnerable, but we never saw a victim and we never saw any evidence that it was out there other than what he said. Even after taking care of these immediate pressing issues, Michael still had another thing to tend to, Tyversa's executive, who offered to help LabMD gain control of the situation for a hefty fee of some $475 an hour. This made Michael suspicious of Bobak's motives. This guy's a crook. But knowing someone's a crook and... Believing someone's a crook is one thing, but proving someone is a crook is another. So especially when you're playing the infinite world of cyberspace, you know, prove it's not out in cyberspace somewhere means you have to scour all of cyberspace, which is scouring all of the universe. That is daunting and impossible. So it's the perfect uh, situation for criminals. to exploit the ignorant and vulnerable and create fear. And they wouldn't go away for a while. And they, and they called us and threatened us and said they were going to send things over to the Federal Trade Commission because they felt they had to. And their lawyer called and told us this. 
And we were like, go ahead, you know, send it to the federal government. We've done nothing wrong. We have no proof of even a breach here. Michael didn't think he had anything to worry about, since he didn't know of any wrongdoing or male practice done by his company. So the next thing we looked at was, do we have to alarm our patients that were in there, the 9,000 patients? And at the time, the law was that you did not have to. We weren't even sure we had a breach. I spent the next three years looking. We never found anything. No phone call, no nothing. At first, Michael thought the government would assist him, or at least clear him of any lingering suspicions. But now, his company found itself caught in the FTC's crosshairs. And just as things died down, the federal government, through the Federal Trade Commission, co- contacted us and said they'd received a file. We knew who it was from. They wouldn't tell us who. They didn't need to tell us. And that they would be starting a non-public investigation. The FTC's origins go back to the early 20th century, when the robber barons held massive power over the American economy and positioned themselves in a prime position to influence America as a nation. These businessmen amassed wealth by utilizing new inventions like petroleum and train networks, but were widely accused of aggressive, immoral, and sometimes even illegal business practices. Pretty soon, the United States government and its courts of law decided to limit the robber baron's power with antitrust laws. That's how the FTC was born. So the Federal Trade Commission, the Federal Trade Commission is an agency that was created in 1914 through President Woodrow Wilson. And they were tasked with ensuring that consumers were treated well. fairly and without deception. So those are the two big words, fairly and without deception. The FTC's mandate was to protect customers and promote competition, and it draws its power from Section 5 of the Federal Commission Act, which prohibits, quote, unfair or deceptive acts or practices in or affecting commerce. Over the years, the FTC changed and began regulating new areas of business. One of them was cybersecurity. The FTC decided to take on companies whose cybersecurity practices were inadequate and failed to protect their customers' private information. And so they were saying, if your data security practices aren't up to snuff and you're vulnerable to a breach, then you're not being fair. Therefore, you're violating Section 5 of the FTC Act, and they have jurisdiction to investigate you. And it is actually, it is a civil offense. It is not a crime. So no one can go to jail, but it is a civil offense. And they give you a, a cease and desist. Michael found himself facing a new dilemma. whether or not to give in to the FTC's demands and agree to an investigation. And what they do is they come and investigate you. They want you to sign a consent decree that requires you to do all these tasks, and they require you to do it for two decades, and they chalk the agreement full of 
all sorts of severe punishments so that if you break something, you've signed a contract to say that they can punish you in a certain way. Otherwise, they couldn't punish you. And a lot of big companies just play the game and sign and move on. There were 37 companies before me that had been challenged by the Federal Trade Commission for cybersecurity unfairness and deception, and they all signed 20-year consent decrees. I'm a medical facility. I'm an operating medical cancer detection uh, facility with over 700,000 patients. That type of doubt over our integrity kills. And I would not sign anything. In hindsight, Michael's decision to refuse the FTC's request was almost a declaration of war. At this point, he was still convinced this was only a temporary crisis. But the FTC wasn't going to fold. I didn't know it was going to destroy us then. I hadn't met them yet. I thought they were going to be like Health and Human Services. So Health and Human Services comes and investigates us all the time, but we are investigated by people that are pathologists or medical technologists. They're, they're expert in laboratory medicine, and that's who inspects us. So we have a very collegial, professional relationship, and it's based on scientific fact. So at first I was like, this will be great because they'll see all this, and you know we'll be fine. Very quickly, when we submitted everything and they were mad, it was very weird. We gave them everything and they were mad. And we gave them thousands of documents. And, you know, they just wanted us to organize the entire investigation for them. And this is very hard for people to understand because it's so foreign to what we're taught either through a civics book or a television show. In criminal law, uh, there is the Constitution and we have the Bill of Rights. This is not criminal law. This is not civil law. This is not the Constitution. This is a part of the U.S. government that no one is taught about. Around this time, this legal odyssey was starting to take a toll on LabMD. The FTC went through all their depositions. They deposed 40 people. The deposition process just utterly terrified my employees and destroyed the company. People started resigning, and, and the press had reported the investigation, and the company started to die from within. The best strategy for organizations to avoid becoming a victim of ransomware is to prevent the attack from being successful in the first place. Cyber Reason remains undefeated in the fight against ransomware because it moved beyond alerting to deliver an operation-centric approach that detects and prevents ransomware attacks at the earliest stages of initial ingress and lateral movement. The Cyber Reason predictive response capability disrupts ransomware attacks prior to data exfiltration and long before the ransomware payload can be delivered. Visit cyberreason.com to learn more about predictive ransomware protection and how your organization can realize both increased efficiency and efficacy through an operation-centric approach to security operations. 
In 2013, the FTC filed a suit against LabMD because of Michael's refusal to comply with the agency's request for cooperation. Jessica Rich, director of the FTC's Bureau of Consumer Protection, explained the reasoning behind the decision. From The Atlantic, quote, The unauthorized exposure of consumers' personal data puts them at risk. The FTC is committed to ensuring that firms who collect that data use reasonable and appropriate security measures to prevent it from falling into the hands of identity thieves and other unauthorized users. End quote. There's little doubt that the FTC is justified in wanting to protect consumers by forcing companies to strengthen their cybersecurity posture. After all, many, if not most, of the stories we told here in Malicious Life over the years involved companies neglecting their duty to protect their customers' private data. Yahoo, LinkedIn, Equifax? The examples are way too numerous. But LabMD argued that in order to enforce the appropriate standards of cybersecurity, the FTC first needs to define what these standards are. After they sued us, the first conference with the judge in September of 2013, the judge said to them, where is it where a business can go to to learn what they're supposed to do? And the FTC said, there is no place for a business to go to to know what to do. The FTC said that cybersecurity is changing so quickly that they need to be able to call a, a violation on a case-by-case basis as they go along. This wasn't the only crazy thing that Michael found out at this time. Going back to the initial hack, when Michael was contacted by Robert Bobak of Tyversa, he suspected that there was foul play involved by the company. It turns out that he wasn't the only one who was troubled by the FTC's collaboration with the private company. Even the FTC's own commissioner, Thomas Rausch, warned against it. Rausch wrote in 2012, a few months before he left the organization, quote, Tyversa is a commercial entity that has financial interest in intentionally exposing and capturing sensitive files on computer networks and a business model of offering its services to help organizations protect against similar infiltrations. While there appears to be nothing per se unlawful about this evidence, the Commission should avoid even the appearance of bias by not relying on such evidence or information. End quote. Tyversa, for its part, strongly denied Michael's allegations. Robert Bobak published a public letter in the Wall Street Journal claiming that Tyversa was being a good Samaritan by alerting LabMD about its leaked information and that Tyversa was actually forced to report the case to the FTC in response to a government subpoena. But even Michael couldn't suspect the whole truth. When a whistleblower from Tyversa got in touch with him, Michael was shocked by what he had to say. I got a call from a whistleblower in April of 14, and this is when the entire, the entire saga just explodes to a whole new level, where a gentleman named Rick Wallace calls and says, I worked at Tyversa, I left yesterday, 
I destroyed your company. I came in and stole it. It was never out in cyberspace. Everything you say in your book is true, but it's way worse. We, we do this all the time. And, and uh, I'm sorry, I mean, he was crying and he, he had actually tried to commit suicide. According to a report by Reuters, Wallace said that he was instructed to falsify evidence that LabMD's patient file fell into the hands of identity thieves. Wallace testified that Bobak told him, quote, we need this at four different IP addresses and they need to be bad guys, end quote. And if a cybersecurity firm engaging in extortion wasn't enough, this revelation also shook the foundations of the case against LabMD. If the company's information wasn't ever illegally published online, then no patient data was ever in danger. So uh, I got the whistleblower with Daryl Issa, a congressman in the House of Representatives in Congress, and he ran the House Oversight Committee. And he started interviewing Rick and he opened an investigation during the summer of 2014. While this was going on, I went on trial in the FTC court and the FTC put up their entire case not knowing about this investigation and not knowing that I'd been called by a whistleblower and their discovery was over and they rested their case and then we brought out our witness and the FTC literally freaked out. But Michael wasn't out of the danger zone yet. Rick Wallace's testimony was threatened by a new campaign of intimidation. Once he became publicly known, he immediately started being witness tampered. He was chased down the highway. He had death threats. His children were surveilled, the bus stops surveilled, and the government did nothing, nothing. And the witness tampering was very successful. And he withdrew. He pulled in his communications and he got very withdrawn. A battle ensued in Congress about Rick Wallace's criminal immunity, and eventually he was granted immunity. The House Oversight Committee published a report that provided new details about Tyversa's shady practices. For example, the committee found that Tyversa had faked documents relating to the president's helicopter and claimed that they were found at an Iranian IP address. In 2016, FBI agents raided the company's Pittsburgh headquarters and Tyversa decided to place its CEO on leave. It seemed like the FTC's crusade against LabMD would finally end. After all, how could a company be blamed for a leak that never happened? The Justice Department did grant Rick criminal immunity. So he didn't testify for a year. And finally, in Mar May of 15, my case reopened and he testified that he came in and took it that it was not out in cyberspace. They did not drop the case. They instead changed their argument mid-case to say that you don't have to have a breach, you don't have to have a victim to ha be violating the FTC Act. 
for bad cybersecurity practices. You just have to have bad cybersecurity practices. And they get to decide what those are on a case-by-case basis. Which brings us back to that decisive moment in the 11th Circuit Court in 2018. We got to oral argument where the judge on the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals was berating the Federal Trade Commission and the Federal Trade Commission admitted that yes, Tyversa did bad things. Yes, they don't work with them now. But here was the big thing. The FTC tried to argue to the court that they could make rules after they charge someone. They could charge you first and then codify the rule as they went along. And truly, I think one of the justices laughed out loud and thanked them for their concession. The judges also had reservations about the FTC's lack of specificity when it came to enforcing cybersecurity standards. From the court's decision, quote, In the case at hand, the cease and desist order contains no prohibitions. It does not instruct LabMD to stop committing a specific act or practice. Rather, it commands LabMD to overhaul and replace its data security program to meet an indeterminable standard of reasonableness, end quote. The court ruled in Michael's favor, but it was too little and too late. At this point, the company was already in ruins. He won the legal battle, but lost the war. I couldn't get to court for nine years. I couldn't get to court until the case was over, until the company was dead. And then the FTC lost, but most legal reporters can't be bothered to read the case to get down to what's really going on. And so then um, I filed for reimbursement under the Equal Access to Justice Act. And we spent about $15 million dollars And we got an $800,000 check for that. And that's supposed to be equal access to justice. That's supposed to be your reimbursement for all they put you through. Michael's victory in 2018 wasn't the end of it. Shortly afterwards, he got new information from the Tyversa whistleblower, revealing the shady ties between the company and the FBI. And the whistleblower... gave me another dump of information because he didn't tell me the whole truth early on at all. And in early 19, we got through a part of it that showed, and th- this is really where the earth shook, by the way, and the courts still don't know this. They're going to know it soon. But it turns out that the FBI is who gave Tyversa the software to break into computers. So that until, until 10 years later, I myself and the entire world was led to believe by the Federal Trade Commission and the Department of Justice and the FBI that the software that was used to break into all these computers was Tyversus. Turned out it was the FBI's. 
The FBI was doing child pornography investigations in the early 2000s, and they hired Tyversa to help them in a small-scale effort. After the 2018 court ruling and the uncovering of this potentially implicating information, Michael decided to take the fight to the government. He sued the FTC and Tyversa's owner in different lawsuits, and some of these cases are still being litigated to this day. His win against the FTC may not have saved his company from financial ruin, but he does not regret his decision to refuse that original FTC request and go to war head-to-head with the agency. The day the Federal Trade Commission letter came, you asked me what I thought, you know, that was 2010. My attorney said to me, oh my God, those people have no idea who they've just started to fight with. Because I do turn my cheek the other way. I don't fight every single battle. And if I did run a store that was a dress shop or, you know, a hospital or a car dealership or a hard drive company, that would be different. But this was like human lives diagnosing cancer at a highly specialized rate. And the destruction of it, well, I had plenty of moments of despair, but never that I was going to give up. Ever. And I mean, ever. I mean, that's just how I'm wired. Was it worth it? Michael Doherty says that he believes that eventually his actions will help protect the next guy approached by the FTC and help save the next company targeted by the agency. When you have an 11th Circuit Court of Appeals using language like that at a government agency, that gets people's attention. Since that's happened, many people that are under oppressive government investigations reach out to me, and they're more sophisticated earlier in the process. More people now believe this is possible. Michael is not the only one who thinks that the FTC's decision to continue the legal fight, even after Tyversa's shady business practices were exposed, was a mistake. Craig Newman, chair of the privacy practice at the law firm Patterson, Belknap, Webb and Tyler, said to Bloomberg, quote, Companies subject to an FTC enforcement action have generally made well-considered business judgments that settlements make more sense than years of litigation and discovery, especially with the in-house administrative process where the playing field seems tilted in the government's favor. Now, companies may toughen their stance when the FTC pays a visit. End quote. This story doesn't have a happy ending, a Hollywood-style third act where the good guy gets the money he deserves and the apology he earned. Life's too complicated for these endings. A court ruling in your favor is not enough to clear 10 years of financial disaster, and it does not make up for a reputation lost and a career destroyed. But the FTC's case against Michael shows something important about the cyber world and the various entities struggling to adapt to its new realities. 
in 2008, and still today, government agencies often find it difficult to keep up with the pace of events online. When hackings are on the rise, it's easy for governments to adopt a hardliner position and seek to forcibly root out all cybercrimes. The danger is that innocent people like Michael will get caught up in unjust lawsuits. Holding companies to cybersecurity standards is important, but it must be done in transparent and productive ways. The internet may seem like a mysterious, ominous place for gigantic organizations like government agencies, but this fear cannot lead to draconic measures. Maybe the FTC should have adopted the ancient proverb guiding all doctors from the dawn of Western civilization. First, do no harm. That's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. Two weeks ago, I asked for volunteers to help us with editing transcriptions of B-side episodes made by OpenAI's Whisper Artificial Intelligence. And the response from the audience was absolutely amazing. Out of the 46 episodes that needed editing, 17 are already done and another 12 are in progress. I want to give a shout-out to these fantastic volunteers. To Ayo, Dario Princip, Suki T, who edited three episodes, Mitchell Marriott, Steve Deggins, who edited, dig this, ten episodes all by himself, Dick Curtis, who edited three episodes, Crescendo Sarkar, John Diverse, Trivikram Mohalindharn. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing your name, <laughs> sorry about that, Andrew Green, John William Dahl, and Sudus Ahmed Yusuf. Thank you all very, very much for taking the time to help us, and I'm sure that the many people who will read the texts in the future will thank you as well. And another special thank you goes to our Hadas, who coordinates all this group effort. A few more interesting comments we received over on Twitter in the past few weeks. Following the B-side episode about vishing, we asked you, most companies use KBA, knowledge-based authentication, even though it's much safer to use different forms of multi-factor authentication. What's the best KBA question you were ever asked? My answer was the name of my first pet when I was a little kid, which always brings back great memories. Patrick Tumusim from Uganda replied, quote, Oh, yeah, me too. I mostly always acquire a new pet for every service provider. Wink emoji. Well, that's one way to overcome KBA's shortcomings. I guess. Patrick also added, quote, and this is yet another informative episode. I'm definitely a lot wiser regarding the potential of vishing attacks thanks to Rachel Toback and the Malicious Life team. Daryl Knutsen from Alberta also thought that the vishing episode was outstanding, and Tim Wardruff from Portland, Oregon wrote, quote, When I see that the venerable Rachel Toback is the interviewee on one of my podcasts, I know that it's a do-not-skip kind of episode. 
Malicious Life is one of my favorite podcasts. I think it may be one of the only ones where I haven't skipped an episode yet. Thank you to all three of you, Patrick, Daryl, and Tim. Neil Proctor from Denver, Colorado, said about knowledge-based questions, quote, Those are really the worst. The color of your first car? Good thing the future is vastly improving with more secure passkey authentication. End quote. I couldn't agree with you more, Neil. Plus, we're running out of pets for Patrick. <laughs> Another question we asked you was, were you ever the victim of an obvious phishing attack? What made it obvious to you? Now, due to an autocorrect catastrophe and Twitter's policy of no editing, the P in phishing was replaced with an F. I fully expected you to take advantage of this mistake and you didn't let me down. So thank you for all the fish-slapping gifts, and we have a couple of real comments as well. Leonardo Dominguez from Kukiri Forest, first listener from Kukiri Forest, say hi to Link from me. He wrote, quote, fell for a vishing attack to schedule my internet installation, only realized because they tried a second time. To this day, I don't know how they knew I just changed ISP. And Ahmed Yassin from Lebanon, hello, neighbor, he added, quote, I always get scams, like monthly. I just troll them for days. It's like a hobby now, end quote. We really should make an episode about trolling scammers. Should be a fun episode to research. Dave from Western New York, he wrote, quote, shows like yours and Darknet Diaries have made me much more aware of them for sure. And when I get them, I make my friends aware that it's out there as well. End quote. Thank you very much, Dave. So happy to hear we're making a difference. Abe Stone, a physical security expert, added that, quote, all of the text messages with phishing links in them that I started receiving after signing up to the national no-call list. I feel you, Abe. That's annoying on so many levels. Thank you to everyone who said nice things about us on social media. Malicious Life is produced by PI Media. This episode was written by Agam Kedem-Levy, edited by Nate Nielsen, with sound design by Yotam Halachmi. Our website is malicious.life, and you can follow us on Twitter at at maliciouslife, or follow me at at ranlevy. That's R-A-N-L-E-V-I. Thanks to CyberReason for underwriting the podcast. Learn more at CyberReason.com. Dot com. Bye bye. Oh